Hey guys, we're going to continue our series, The Abundant Life, as we're going through the book of John. We're not going through the entire book of John today. We're going to be looking at chapter 7, and my goal is to do the entire chapter. But we're not going to cover every single verse, of course, but we're going to look at some gems. We're going to see something come together. I think it's going to be really challenging and helpful for us. And so I'm looking forward to this as we dig in. But before we do, I want you to just join me in prayer as we ask God's Spirit to teach us and really open our eyes to embrace what he's got for us. So, Father, we do that right now. I'm asking, Lord, that your Spirit speak to our hearts. You've got some precious truths. You've got a gift, I believe, for every single one of us, including myself, that your Spirit wants to drop into our heart. Give us ears to hear that we would hear what the Spirit is saying to the church that wouldn't but just be hearers of the word. God, make us doers of the word. So do that this evening, Lord God, in Jesus' name, amen. You may have heard this story before, but Chuck Swindoll, wow, Chuck Swindoll, how old is that guy? He's been around for like decades. Chuck Swindoll tells this story, you may have heard it before, in which in Russia, before Glasnost, in Russia, the KGB agents rushed into a house church with their... Uh, with their rifles and said, we're going to kill every single one of you who proclaims Jesus. So if you do not proclaim Jesus, if you're not truly a Christian, we're giving you a chance. Leave this room, this house right now. But for the rest of you, it's you and, it's you and the gun. And so a number of people left one after the other. And the last one left closed the door. And the KGB agent said, now let's worship the Lord. They had confessed that when they had been told the week before to storm a house church, that instead of shooting them, they got saved. And as they came to this house church, they confessed, we have learned by experience that unless people are willing to die for their faith, they cannot be trusted. Jesus said to his disciples, deny self, take up your cross, and follow him. That's what he challenged his disciples to do. If you want to be my disciple, three things. Deny self, take up your cross, and follow him. Take up your cross doesn't mean bear with the person sitting next to you or your neighbor or that person who sits across from you in the church or that person in, in, your, in the marketplace, in your office. It means willingness to die for Jesus. Understand, this willingness to die for Jesus is a prerequisite for following Jesus. It's tantamount to faith. It is that kind of radical allegiance that we are pledging to Jesus Christ. It's not something that after years and years and years you finally come, you know what, I think I'm willing to die for Jesus. Well, great. I'm glad you came to that place. But Jesus said, if you're not willing to do that, you can't be my disciple, Jesus said some very radical things like this. And I'm, I'm encouraging you to think deeply about what it means to believe in Jesus. And we see it throughout the book of John. Jesus gives these radical claims. And we learned the last couple of weeks in chapter 6, the, one we just, the, the, the chapter we just preached through. Because generally 6 comes before 7, right? In that chapter, Jesus becomes so divisive. And from that moment on, and you're going to see it develop in this chapter, people take sides. People are wondering, who is he? Does, is, he really, is he really the Christ? And some begin to believe in him. 
And I'm going to encourage you that to believe in him means that you are willing to die for him. At age 14, it kind of clicked for me. I'd grown up in a Christian home. I, under, I, I, I thought I understood faith. But that day, in my brother's bedroom, while he gave me a gospel tract... Am I going to heaven? Find out inside 17 things that I could check off. Man, did I go to 10? I checked every single block off, including other. And what I realized was that my problem was this. And this is what we're going to hear today. It's what we learned in in chapter 4, chapter 6. I needed to thirst for Jesus. See, I think that's our problem, church. I think so many times people say, well, I believe in Jesus. I walked the aisle. I said a prayer. I'm not going to doubt their faith. But Jesus constantly comes back to this. He says, thirst for me. I mean, what does this mean? We're going to encounter it in this chapter. What does it mean to thirst for Jesus? I know at age 14, I truly wanted more. I wanted him more than anything in life. And I, I, I realized, as I read through the Gospel of John, that's what it was. I began to thirst for Jesus. Do you thirst for him? Psalm 42, four, verses 1 through 2, says this. As the deer pants for streams of water. Do you remember this song? Man, we, I used to sing this all the way back in the 70s, guys. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Aren't you glad I'm reading it and not singing it. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Do you you hear that longing and that desire that's being stirred up because he thirsts for God? Today we're going to see some people who really thirsted for God and some who didn't and perhaps even discover why they did or didn't. John chapter 7, I'm going to begin with verse 1. I'm going to skip a few verses, I'll let you know when I do. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5. For even his own brothers, and that includes James and Jude, even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up to the feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, The Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. 
Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to preach. Skipping over to verse 25. At that point, because Jesus addresses the Jews in that section there that I skipped. And he concludes with verse 24. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment with regard to him healing a man on the Sabbath. At that point, some of the disciples of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? They began to wonder if he was the Christ because they claimed that when the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Jesus defends himself and he challenges them, you do not know him, but I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. Verse 30. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot go. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that he, we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will, I'm going to quote it directly, will flow out of his belly. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified, which would have been through the cross, through the resurrection, and then his ascension. Then, ten days later, the Spirit came. By those things, he was glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, remember him from chapter 3? Who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number. He was from the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council, by the way. And asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Now, I'm not going to argue the fact that these are experts in the law, but may I remind you that Jonah was from Gethhefer, 
That would be in Zebulun. That would be in Galilee. I think more to the point, they were wondering, isn't an important prophet, see, Jonah was a complaining prophet, what is an important, especially the prophet, like the Christ, isn't he supposed to, is he going to come from Galilee? Of course not. Galilee was, had quite a few Gentiles. What we discover here is that Jesus, or, or that, that John sets the scene that Jesus has been preaching in, in Galilee because the Jews in Jerusalem want to kill him. Now, a feast of the tabernacles, which generally is September or October, has just arrived. That means this event, chapter 7, takes place about six months before the Passover in which Jesus died. So six months before Passion Week, six months before Jesus died on the cross. That's the time frame that we're looking at here. So Jesus has to be very careful. There is such animosity from the Jews that's been welling up against him. He needs to be careful. So he makes a decision and his brothers say, hey, look, Jesus, aren't you going to go up to the feast? Apparently it didn't look like he was going to. And he says, no, 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 you guys go ahead. Now, when Jesus says, I'm not going up, what he is more than likely saying is that he is not going to become one of those groups of what they called pilgrims that would sing one of the songs of ascent that would be found in your Bible in Psalm, between Psalm 120 and Psalm 134. So there's 15 of those psalms, and generally a group would gather and they would either sing or recite one of those songs of ascent that you'll find there in Psalms, as they would go up to the temple. Generally, during the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go up with you, because that's what they would do. They would go there, they would arrive, and then they would go with the group up to Zion, singing or chanting or reciting one of these Psalms. But Jesus did come. As a matter of fact... It says that he, he probably arrived a little before halfway, but he, was very, he, he did not come out into public. Halfway through the feast, he finally shows himself. Feast is already underway. A lot of people are gathered there, not just from Jerusalem, but throughout Israel. They're gathered there. I'm going to ask you, how do they receive Jesus? This is, I believe this is John's very purpose as he weaves this chapter and this setting, the story together. How do the people receive him? First, his brothers, they mock him. These are the people who are closest to Jesus. Because they're thinking, my goodness, Jesus is an ordinary man. I mean... He had to learn just like me. He falls down when he was a kid and he would cry just like me. I mean, what's special about him? But Jesus, keep in mind, never sinned. But even his brothers, and we're talking James and Jude, they wrote two books in the Bible, James and Jude. They didn't believe in him. Not until after Jesus' resurrection, apparently. It says here that the whole world hates Jesus. That's another group of people. They actually hate Jesus. And the reason why they hate him is because he, 
excuse me one second here, is because he condemns them. He points out the evil. That is, like in chapter 8, the next chapter, he tells them, hey, guys, you're slaves to sin. Now, the reason why he does this is not like he goes around saying, okay, you're a fornicator, you're an adulterer, you're a liar, you're an embezzler. He's not like this prophet who can read their mail and he's calling out their sins. He doesn't do that. Though there are times in which he did to a group of people like the Pharisees, but generally that was not his, that's not what he did. Jesus challenged them about their need That he was the answer. He was the remedy for their problem. Jesus didn't go around finger pointing, but declared the world was a prisoner of sin and needed freedom through him. But you know what? In order to know the answer, which is Jesus, you generally got to know what the question is. You generally have to know what the problem is that Jesus is the answer to. And so it's not as if he didn't talk about sin, but he did. And he was not afraid. He wasn't even afraid to call out the Pharisees at times for their hypocrisy. So Jesus, excuse me, so the world, it says, hated Jesus. How about the crowds? The crowds are divided. This is important. It says there in verse 12, it says, Among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's deceiving the people. They're divided. If you were to look there in verse 40, it says on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the Christ. Others thought he was, uh, excuse me, the prophet. Some thought he was the Christ. And others said, hey, you know what? How can the Christ come from Galilee? They thought Jesus was from Nazareth. Look at verse 31. It says, still many in the crowd put their faith in him. See, the crowds were divided. I'm going to come back to that. The crowds were divided. Well, how about the Jews? How about the Pharisees and the chief priests? So the chief priests were the higher-up priests. They were the Sadducees, because the Sadducees right now were the ruling class amongst the religious leaders. And so the Jews, the Pharisees, and the chief priests who were Sadducees had an issue too. Number one, it says in verse 11, when they were at, when, during the feast, they kept watching for him. The Jewish, the leaders, they're watching for him. Why were they watching for him? Verse 1 says, because they wanted to kill him. See, this is how the Jews, this is how the religious leaders viewed Jesus. They were ready to kill him. And the reason why they were ready to kill him was because they did not, they didn't believe he was follow, he followed through with the law. They believed that he was a lawbreaker. He broke the Sabbath. After all, he healed on the Sabbath. And though John only focuses on one, there's another one in, in chapter 9. Jesus did this regularly. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Now, I'm not going to get into his rationale. Hey, you circumcised on the Sabbath because Moses tells you, so you're willing to break the Sabbath in order to keep the law of circumcision. And here I am healing a person. So the Jews, they're not divided. The Jews, they're firm in what they want to do. They want to kill Jesus. They send guards to Jesus to arrest him. Six months before his time, understand several times in this chapter, it says people wanted to seize him, but they couldn't because it wasn't Jesus' time. 
I mean, there's a lot there that we could unwrap, but that's not going to be my point tonight. The Pharisees wanted him dead. The Pharisees hated him. The Pharisees did not believe. In verse 52, it says, Are you from Galilee? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. That was their excuse for not believing in Jesus. He can't be the Christ. I want to ask you, this isn't the first time Jesus faces it. Actually, three times in this chapter, one of which I didn't read. I just talked about it. Verse 27, they, they're, they're wondering, is he the Christ, is he not? And they bring up where he's from. Then later, we read about in verse 42, does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? And then the Pharisees say he can't be this a prophet because he's from Galilee. Here's my question. Why doesn't Jesus ever address this? Why doesn't he just stop them and say, hey, guys, you know what? There's a lot of talk about where I'm from. Let me just put this all to rest. I was actually born in Bethlehem. And they probably would have said, yeah, right. Everybody that knows you says that you're from Nazareth. Well, Jesus arrived in Nazareth probably when he was about two years of age. So, yeah, he's been there like most of his life, but he was born in Bethlehem. What is he going to do? Pull out his special papers that Matthew appeals to, that Luke chapter 3 appeals to, and say, see my lineage? I'm really from Bethlehem. I'm really from the line of David. See, he can't do that. But Jesus could have appealed, you know, I can, I'm just going to tell you the whole story. Here's how it all happened. He could even leave out the virgin birth because that would have been maybe too hard for them to swallow. But he never does this. Why not? Because I'm going to tell you this one reason. I'm going to tell you this, and, and here I believe this is the reason. Because there is a far deeper issue that the people are always wrestling with. It's not where he's from. Can I ask you, if you think you understand a truth, you're not sure, maybe you're wrong, maybe you're right, what do you do? Do you just assume that you're right and call everyone else liars? Don't you ask questions? See, we don't see this type of humility anywhere among the Pharisees. We just don't see it. See, the crowds were divided. Because they're really thinking through this. I think they really want to know. See, amongst them, some of them are getting thirsty. But the Pharisees, you got to toe the party line. Their culture, their peers, put so much pressure on the rest of them. They could not be open to it. However, John does tell us of two. John tells us of Nicodemus, and he tells us of Joseph of Arimathea. We read about Nicodemus here, but Nicodemus doesn't take a firm stand. He just asks a question. Maybe Nicodemus is still thinking through all of this. Maybe he's still not sure, is Jesus really the Christ? Joseph of Arimathea, if you were to look at chapter 19... Starting with verse 38, you know, I'll read it to you. It says, later, Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus has just died on the cross. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, 
excuse me, now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. Skipping down to verse 39, he, he was accompanied, excuse me, by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Jesus knows why the Pharisees refuse to believe in him. He calls them out in chapter 5. Now, we looked at this some time ago, but in chapter 5, verse 41, he says, I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. Wow. And he goes on to say a few verses later in verse 44, how can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God. Why did they refuse to follow Jesus? Because they wanted, because of their pride, they wanted the praise of men. They loved the world and they loved the accolades of the world. They were caught up in their culture. You're the leaders. See, if they started looking to Jesus, they would start looking to him as the leader and not them. At least John the Baptist got it right. I must decrease and he must increase. That was not the heart of the Pharisee. They loved the world. They loved the praise from the world. And they just could not give that up. And here's my challenge. Don't, or, or do we truly love and, and, and follow after Jesus? Are we any different than the Pharisees? Do we love our sin? More than Jesus. Now the only way we're going to weigh this out is we confess Jesus, but when we look at our lifestyle, our lifestyle, if John says those who are born of God do not continue to sin, that means they don't continue to live a kind of life that they lived before Christ. There's a change. The Pharisees, they didn't want to see Jesus as the one who would come and break the bondage of sin in their life. They were not thirsty. See, that's the key. Right there. They weren't thirsty. I'm going to tell you this right now. If you love eating your bag of chips and eating your soda, chips and soda, I'll be honest with you, I have, in my older age, I have had to Draw the line. I have to be so careful there. But when you fill up with chips and soda, when it comes time to eat a real meal, you are not hungry. And I'm just going to say, when the world begins to satisfy you, you will not thirst for Jesus. That's the problem. We look for our soul's satisfaction not in God, the Pharisees weren't. Jesus just said, you're concerned about the love of others. You truly do not love God. They found their souls, their hearts' satisfaction, not in God, though they said they did, but they found it in the praise and the position and their cultural affirmations. And it quenched any thirst their pride, their love for praise. And you know, to be honest with you, I'm not suggesting that none of the Pharisees did. Obviously, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea did. But if you were to look at John chapter 12, 
Jesus, excuse me, John has this to say. He says, yet at the same time, though they're, they're talking about people believing in Jesus, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, I'm sure there were many others, but even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. But what did they do? <laughs> they put up a smoke screen. What they would call perhaps intellectual reasons why I am not following Jesus. He's a Sabbath breaker and three times in this chapter, where was he born? See, the prophet, the Christ, no one important comes from Galilee. That's a smoke screen. To cover that, they're, that they truly are not hungering after Christ. I'm going to just challenge you, you know, when we make that choice, when we truly are thirsty and we find our soul satisfaction in Christ, we are willing to die for him. We are willing to, this, this is everything. I'm get, he's my life. That was the mentality. See, that's what water baptism is truly a declaration of. The old Mike Curtis, he doesn't live anymore. The old Diego Spouto, see, he doesn't live anymore. The old Saxon, doesn't, he's not alive anymore. Because Christ has come in and they have found their satisfaction in him and they've said, I am following Jesus. They've died to the old and they've embraced the new. They've said no to that sinful lifestyle. And I'm not saying they never stumble into it, but there's this heart of repentance every time they do. And it's like, man, I've just got to run from that. That's not a part of my life. You know what, church? I, I know for me, I was caught up in the culture. It was a Christian culture. It was a church culture. Of course I believe. I raised my hand in vacation Bible school. Come on. But see, I had never truly thirsted for Jesus. These people, they had these intellectual questions, musings, if you will. I believe that they were simply excuses. Well, that's why we're not really following him. No, the real reason was because they were enemies of God. The real reason is because they did not truly thirst after him. Romans 1. It says that people, in order to hide their sin, they say that there, there is no God, and they make that their, their focus. And Paul says in Romans 1, look, the very fact that there is a God is self-evident in all of creation. You can see his power, and you can just see his divine attributes, so that no one will stand before God saying, I didn't know. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. No one will have an excuse. No one will have an intellectual reason why they should not follow Jesus Christ. A lot that I could get into right there to, to defend that, but I'm just going to tell you, Jesus never addresses where he's from. When it's three times it came up in this chapter, he never addresses it. This is what he does address. Do you thirst? Is there something in your soul that you know that you need God to fix, to change, to heal? 
Do you really thirst for the truth? Do you really thirst for Jesus Christ? See, they didn't. The world hated him. The Jews, reje- the Jews and the leaders rejected him. And Jesus challenges them. If anyone is thirsty, this is like the hallmark, the main, he's like the keynote speaker, if you will, in in verse 37, the last and greatest day of the feast. What's his focus? If you're not going to thirst for me, you're never going to find me. But if you thirst for me, let that person come to me. Drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will well up within him. Mm. You know, I, I ask myself the question, why does John segue to this point about Jesus on this last and greatest day of the feast, bring up the whole issue of thirsting and then the Holy Spirit? Remember, they had just asked you know, Jesus, if you, where are you going that we cannot come to you? And so Jesus says, hey, do you really want to come to me? you got to be thirsty. Do you really want me? I mean, if they knew where Jesus was, would they really go to him? See, they wouldn't. This whole idea of thirsting is driving this entire chapter of what Jesus is trying to communicate. It's what he tried to communicate to the Samaritan woman who was caught in her sin. She was five times she had divorced her husband. And now this sixth man, she wasn't even married to him. There was such an ache in her soul. You see, when we truly thirst and find your satisfaction in Christ, it will so stir you that there is going to be a change. You're going to embrace him. You're going to believe in him. And Jesus says here that the Spirit of God is going to be like living water, and it's going to gush out of you. It's going to gush out of you. Now, I have a sneaky suspicion that the guards, when they confess no one ever spoke the way this man does, that the guards starting to, started to get a glimpse of what this thirst was really all about. Jesus is challenging those who hate him come to this point of thirsting for him, which is then believing in Jesus and then being filled with his spirit because the ache in their soul needs remedy. Here's my here's my challenge to us for every single one of us do you thirst for Jesus it's not something that you acquire later on in your in your Christian life it's not as if you say you know what I've been baptized and I follow Jesus but one of these days I'm going to really want to one of these days I'm just going to thirst I'm going to hunger no you you thirst and you hunger before you come to Jesus Do you thirst for him? Do you want him more than anything in this life? Jesus is not asking for halfway commitment here. Scripture says in 2 Chronicles 16.9, it says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, seeking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. See, that is the challenge. When we're thirsty, 
we recognize Jesus is now everything to me in my life. He is the only answer for this ache in my soul, for this feeling of being distant from God, from my slavery to sin. He is the only one that can truly set me free. And this is the subject we're going to get to in chapter 8. Jesus is the answer, though. We must thirst for him. And he says that he's going to, the spirit is this living water. And it satisfies that thirst. But you know what? He says this. He says, this, when you believe, you will have this, this, you'll receive the spirit. And it says that he is going to flow out of your belly. It's not just, see, in chapter 4, the living water was just there. It was stirring in you. In chapter 7 here, now it flows out of you. And this, he said, he's referring to them when they would receive the Spirit after Jesus was glorified on the day of Pentecost and on, in which the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon all who would believe in him, all those who would truly seek after him and say, I want you to fill me with your Spirit. The sense of desperation, the sense that I am thirsty. Tell you what, during the summer months, if you're ever out in the yard and you don't, have a, you don't have water close to you, now there are times in which I am at my dealership and I'm doing paint work and man, I'm just, I'm wiping sweat off me every five to ten minutes. I'm out in the sun. There have been times in which I ran out of water and I'm, just, you know, I'm so close to, I've got only an hour left. I know that if I have an hour left, that is far too long. By the time I have so many times I've been close to heat exhaustion because I am so thirsty and weary by that hour. I can't last that long. Can I ask you, do you long for Jesus like that? Do you become weary when you're not seeking him? And you know when you're not seeking him, my friends. You know it. You know it. And when the attractions of the world just seem to overcome you, when, the, when this or this, and, and it, it crowds him out and we, we begin to feel thirsty. And if you're not feeling thirsty, I want to challenge you why. My friends, never, maybe it's because you have never truly believed in Jesus. If you're thirsty, we come to him, we believe in him. And he satisfies that thirst. If he satisfies that thirst, why do we keep looking elsewhere? And so Jesus, he was so divisive. And I hope as you're listening to me, maybe within you you're saying, wow, that really feels kind of radical. I'm not, this is not a works-oriented gospel church. This is this Spirit of God stirring in us. It's the Father drawing us in this thirsting so that we believe in him, so that we come to Jesus, so that our, our thirst and our hunger are satisfied in him. But you know what? If we play the game... Like I did for so many years, four years I played the game. I thought I, you know, yeah, I mean, I believe in Jesus, sure. But I came to realize I had never truly thirsted or hungered for him. Never. It's interesting that in chapter 4, the spirit is viewed as just 
being within them. And now this living water, it gushes, it flows out like a stream of water welling up and it flows out from your belly. The belly, that's where the womb is, that's where the stomach is. It's this section of the body, okay? And the Spirit of God, referring to the inner man, the Spirit of God flows out of us. I want to tell you this. If you're truly thirsty and then you come to Jesus and you are surrendering to him, he is going to change you. And it's not just that you're going to say, wow, I don't like that lifestyle of Mike Curtis anymore. It's that, but it's more. It is now. I want to follow Jesus. And if he, what he says, that goes. I want to serve in his kingdom. I want to tell people about Jesus. Maybe the reason why the church in our day is truly not evangelizing is because they've never truly thirsted. Because when you thirst and you come to Jesus, the spirit in you overflows. You want to tell people about Jesus. I'm not saying you're going you're gonna to be a Billy Graham. I'm not suggesting that. The Samaritan woman, she just simply said, come and see a man. We can all do that. We can all at least point to Jesus. We can all tell our own story of how I came to Christ. I thirsted for him. What did that look for you? What did that look like for you? And then I came to him, and I know for me at age 14, I just realized, wow. I've been exposed to church. I've heard how many sermons, 50 because I'd play sick at least twice, 50 a year. And I realized I had never placed my faith in Jesus Christ because I had never truly thirsted. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The book of Acts is about a people who were thirsty, they drank, they were satisfied, and the Spirit welled up within them, and they testified. I want to challenge us. You know what? There are just times, and even as a Christian, we can feel weary. That maybe as, as life, as things are unfolding, we can feel defeated. We can feel overwhelmed by the pressures and sometimes just the pressures of our culture to shut our mouths, to not be so radical to follow Jesus like that. Okay, that's for the pastor and his family or the ones really. No, it is for everyone following Jesus radically, but we can get weary. And there are times, church, in which I just say, Jesus, make me thirsty again. I want to be thirsty and find my satisfaction in you every day. Every day. Maybe some of us, we just need to drink again of that living water. Maybe you have believed, okay, but you need to be refreshed. Can you let him do that? He just simply says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. I want to drink every day, church. I want to be filled up every day. I want to be satisfied every day. So if you're frustrated, you're weary. See, I get that. I face that. As a pastor, I face that. And so I'm just going to ask, stand with me. 
And if you want to drink deeply again tonight, maybe you haven't ever, then I'm going to say do it tonight. Maybe you have in the past and tonight you just need another refreshment. We're going to pray. Let's ask that God stir our hearts. Let's ask that God do something in us. And I'm going to tell you this. Expect him this coming week to flow out of you. Amen. Father, we come before you. I pray if we're not thirsty, stir up the thirst, God. And I just ask you, Lord, as you humble our hearts, that we would want you more than anything in this world, even to the point where we would be willing to die for you.